Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Take Home Reading, a new audio series from the Wheeler Centre. In each episode, we'll be speaking to an Australian writer about their latest book and hearing a reading from it. This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders, past and present. We pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of all lands this broadcast reaches. I'm Stella Charles and I work in the programming team at the Wheeler Centre. Usually I host our monthly reading series, The Next Big Thing, but since we haven't been able to gather together for a few months now, we thought we'd bring these readings to you instead. Today I'm talking to Laura Jean McKay. Laura is the author of Holiday in Cambodia, which was shortlisted for three National Book Awards in Australia. Her work appears in Mianjin, Overland, Best Australian Stories, The Saturday Paper and The North American Review. Laura is a lecturer in creative writing at Massey University with a PhD from the University of Melbourne, focusing on literary animal studies. She's the animal expert presenter on ABC Listen's Animal Sound Safari. Laura's novel and the focus of our conversation is The Animals in That Country, published in April by Scribe. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Stella. It's so nice to be here with you. Congratulations <laughs> on your incredible book. Um, I want to start um, by, can we start by talking about the title, The Animals in That Country? Who are these animals and, and what country are we talking about? The Animals in That Country is actually the title of a Margaret Atwood poem and uh, a collection of her um, wonderful poems, poetry collection. Uh and for a long time, the book was just called Animals. <laughs> I knew that there were uh, was going to be a huge cast of animals in there and that they were going to be communicating uh, extensively. But when I came across that Margaret Atwood poem, there's just these beautiful lines in there that say, um, "The oh, gosh, hang on, I have to flip back. It's been a while since I've read the poem. Uh it says, in this country, the animals have the faces of animals. And later on in the poem, it says, the animals have the faces of people. And I wanted to sort of uh, capture that that moment of common animality between humans and other animals, but also the difference that we hold between ourselves and them, you know, that arm's length thing that we have. And I thought that those lines really captured that. And I also wanted, I guess, uh to get a sense of this country that we call Australia, but that was, you know, originally um, made up of, of course, of, of hundreds and hundreds of different countries and to sort of, um, yeah, look at this this land that, that we're on and the, as the characters go through this quite intense journey uh, where they all, all the human characters catch a flu and um, they can start to understand the language of other animals, I guess I wanted to also just look at the country that they're moving through as well. So it sort of all comes together together in that title. title. (laughs) I love the title. It makes a lot of sense. Mm. Um, You mentioned this cast of characters. Let's just start there and unpack that a little bit in terms of like who who your main cast is and and how you kind of use language to capture um, their, their voices. Can you talk us through? Sure. So the story is told in the voice of a woman called Jean, 
Uh, she's a zoo guide. She really has trouble getting along with other people. She's a really passionate grandma. That's probably the only person she gets along with is her grandma. But who she really likes to talk to are the animals in the wildlife park that she works in. And there's a particular animal called Sue, who's a dingo, who she really has an affinity with. And um, she found Sue as a young dingo and um, has been really engaged with her. And so when this zoo flu comes along and and she and other humans find that they can talk to other animals. Sue is one of the first animals she talks to, and the reading that I do later is actually that first moment when she gets to talk to Sue. So this is an animal that she knows really well physically and as a um, in a non-verbal way, and suddenly this the language barrier has been taken away and they can relate. And, of course, the animals don't say the things that humans wish that they were saying. They're not saying, I rough you or, or anything like that. They're quite um, brutal. Their relationship with humans is really fraught because... Uh, that's the way that human relationships are with animals. And, uh, yeah, as they get to know each other, they are trying to navigate this new space together. You were the recipient of uh, Wheeler Centre Hot Desk Fellowship in 2018. Um, can you take us back to two years ago and where you were at on the project? Like how, um, you know, how long have you been thinking about this novel, you know, and when and I'd love to know when, the concept came to you and, and how that developed over time, particularly with sort of the kind of brave choices you make in the structure and language in this book. Mm. The Wheeler Centre Fellowship came along at such a great time. So I write these terrible drafts. My drafts are just horrible. And I'd really been developing the novel probably for about five years and really just throwing myself at these pages, um, knowing that I wanted to get to a particular point but not quite achieving it. Uh, and when I got the Wheeler Centre Fellowship, I'd just moved back to the city and the novel was just ready for a really hard restructure and I just got this time and also this feeling of um, of support and, and community <laughs> there at that hot desk. And what so what I did was I just really was really restructuring the novel with uh, language in mind. So the animal dialogue really came together in that time and, and in the months after. And also I was looking at power, so how – how do the characters relate on the page? Because as the novel goes on, the dingo character gains more and more power, not in a supreme being sort of way, but in that that, that power relationship shifts between uh, from being a human who is looking after a dingo into a wildlife park to the dingo actually having to look after the human. So I had all these sort of um, printouts and highlighters and I was really really working with big blocks of structure when I was sitting at that desk uh, which was quite fun and quite focused uh, particularly as it felt like the novel had been in quite a messy state up until that point it was nice to really get organized. Nice. <laughs> was it a hard one to share with readers in terms of um, you know Con conveying what you're going for and and how kind of um yeah I feel like just the amazing effect of these voices would have been so personal in your head and and I'd love yeah. to know what that was like when you first kind of started working with your editor on the on the manuscript 
Yeah, well, I I share an early draft uh, with some really trusted readers uh, who include my partner um, and also my writing group. And uh, this early draft is, is, as I've said, really awful. And my partner, Tom, saw this early draft and said, look, this, this talking animal book, it's really great, but there are no talking animals in it. So <laughs> you might have to work on that part. And I think I just had this horror of anthropomorphism and representation and I really had to sort of uh, really start to work these voices into the page. Uh, by the time I got to Scribe or the time Scribe got to me, uh, I got to work with the wonderful um Marika and she was so engaged with animal dialogue and we had we would I'd go into her office and we'd have these passionate debates about the rights of animals to express themselves on the page and how that should look and she really played with the font and and how that might look and so that was a really really joyful process to get to that stage in the novel and then have someone so engaged with how it might look and sound and and read that's great. Mm. Were there any other um, books or writers that um, made an impression on you over the years that you were working on this book? Definitely. Uh, I came to the idea of the novel, I was quite scared because I thought, who writes about about speaking animals, you know, as for children's books? And then, of course, once I started to look around, there were books like Eva Hornung's Dog Boy was made a huge impact on me. Anna Crean had just brought out her Us and Them quarterly essay and, you know, it was really I just looked at that and thought, no, this is a really, really serious issue uh, that that can be addressed very, very seriously. Uh, and then as I as I wrote forward, other people were bringing works out. So Ellen Van Nieven brought out her beautiful collection, Heat and Light, and her story Water in there is one of the most incredible stories I've ever read, especially in terms of human-non-human relationships. Um, I yeah, I can't get enough of that story. So that was that was very, very exciting to see that. And then the Swan book came out, Alexis Wright's incredible work there so especially actually in the Australian landscape I was reading internationally as well and there are an extra there are extraordinarily sorry I can't why am I speaking <laughs> don't make me do podcast Stella <laughs> there are extraordinary works uh coming out there since I've moved to New Zealand of course uh Witi Yamara's The Whale Rider has really influenced me and other works as well but I was just so lucky to be surrounded by these very, very exciting early animal literatures. And now since as the novels come out, of course, there has been an incredible spate of other animal novels. So Erin Hortles, The Octopus and I is just such an exciting book uh, and definitely on the inner workings of animal speech and animal minds. The animals just 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 thrill through her pages. And then also Chris Flynn's Mammoth is another really exciting, hilarious, um, strange, but also very deeply moving novel that's just come out. Yeah, it's it's so, it's kind of so interesting to have all of your books kind of in dialogue with each other at the moment. We spoke to Erin for this podcast a couple of weeks ago and um, we'll be talking to Chris soon. Uh, do do you think it's a coincidence that that um, all your books are kind of out at the same time, or do you think it does speak to some kind of like marked shift in in the way um, we're considering our relationship to 
animals in the natural world? Yes. I mean, I think that there are a lot of books coming out that could be considered speculative and apocalyptic and looking at environmental and especially climate and other animal concerns. And it's no coincidence that that they've all come out at this time. It's no coincidence there are a lot, that there are a lot of books uh, that are coming out around pandemics as well. Um, I think it's because in the last 10 years uh, climate change has become so much more urgent, even though it's been urgent for a long time, but we're all it's weighing very, very heavily on all of us. Uh, Australia has the dubious, um, dubious distinction of having the most extinctions uh, in the world at the moment or some of the most. Uh, so we are, it is the animal turn and it is the environmental turn and we are turning towards these very scary problems and now we're ready to release these findings, I suppose, these creative findings. So it, it's lovely timing. It's lovely to be able to share this space with these books and to be able to have these conversations publicly and privately with these authors who've really considered this. Yeah, I can well. imagine. Mm. So interesting. I was talking to um, James Bradley for this podcast and he was sort of saying, you know, it's just like you've just put so beautifully, like it's beyond the realms of speculative fiction engaging with climate crisis right now. If you're not engaging with it, then your fiction is speculative in some sense, right? And, um, yeah, yeah. Is it was it clear to you that fiction was um, the way that you wanted to kind of tell this story and grapple with these ideas? Was that really obvious right from the word go? Absolutely. I mean, I am really comfortable with fiction. I'm deeply uncomfortable in the non-fictional space in terms of writing. I do write it, but I'm I'm never completely at home with it, uh, especially when we're writing about non-human animals there are things that we can scenes that we can represent uh and scenarios that we can work through in a fictional space that in a non-fictional space would be cruel and and hideous so in a way fiction is a perfect place to engage with ideas of human and non-human relationships because we can do it safely without harming those other animals and and just to work through these very very difficult ideas and relationships that we do have we with have them, them. Yeah, which you do so beautifully. Like you have so much knowledge, scientific knowledge about uh, like animals and animal-human relationships. But um, it, with the animals in that country, you kind of weave this enchanting, quite terrifying spell. I think over the reader um, that uh, yeah is so is so transportative, and I think it has like real a really powerful effect on. Um, you know, changing the reader's mind or, or compelling the reader to consider these relationships in a way that I know personally I hadn't before. So, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> I'd love you to read a little bit from um, from the animals in that country for us. Is there anything you'd like to say to set it up? You mentioned a little bit before. Yeah, so this is the moment that Jean and Sue uh, speak, for want of a better word, um, to each other for the first time. I should say that I use the word speech quite loosely just because it's an easy term. Um, the human characters, when they when they become infected with Sue flu, they can't read other animal minds. Uh, they are more reading body language and smells uh, and and 
all of the the various sort of senses that there are that are communicating communicated in bodies all of the time so suddenly that comes together to make sentences and words so this is what's happening in this moment uh Jean is sort of running around the wildlife park <laughs> trying to trying to cope with this new symptom uh and also trying to find other people and and you know get things together and and suddenly she runs into Sue <clears throat> Turkey bushes flower all along the path. I grab a couple to shove in my ears and nose. It'd be quieter if I could stick to the centre of the melting road, but the shortcut is down a sandy track between the trees, my ears short and munted, eyes darting this way and that like a tourist who doesn't know his face from his bum. The sunlight green through the low canopy, a hissing sound that makes me speed the hell up. Something scratching in the undergrowth, silence as I stand and plough on. I stop crouch low like I can listen better below the wall of stumpy trees, a short strange cough up ahead. Keep it together, Jeannie. Stop these little thinks from travelling up through your gut and getting to your head. Swallow it down, I swallow. My bitten up hand throbs for me to keep moving. I pick up a wobbly dried leaf of pandanus, pandanus. hold it in front of me, the floppiest sword you've ever seen. It slices at my finger, leaving a smile of dark red blood. An orange-footed bushfowl bursts from the bushes, has me damn near pissing myself. There's no messages, just a body. I laugh and it scatters, orange toad through the brush. Nonsense sounds, there's no meaning. My pulse settles. Force myself to crunch along the path, tranquil, like when we first moved north. No point rushing around like a freezing southerner. When your blood and the air are the same temperature, you've got to let them go easy on each other, one step after another. The mutterings dulled and the bush turkey quiet. Just as I skirt around a mossy stump, a voice calls to me like a childhood song. Queen. It rips through my itchy earplugs. I know it. Not Kimberly or Lee or the little things in the tree, but someone so familiar that I skip, God help me, and start towards it. A whiff of queen. Slowly tug the flowers out of my ears and squint through the trees. A flight to my left, the stench of the forest private as an armpit, sweat pooling cold between my boobs. My special someone calls again. Queen is here. Ange? Angela won't be calling anyone queen. It's someone else in the bush. I see caramel, meet with a face so familiar it could be mine takes a moment for me to understand that it's not human. Every thing. Sue. I stumble back into a pandanus. We're both breathing hard. Can you hear me, Sue? Copy that, Queen, yesterday. She's right there, escaped from her enclosure, sitting politely in a clearing with one of our rainbow lorikeets in her mouth, metal ID band around the bird's leg, Kermit or Miss Piggy, I can never tell which from which. Sue's face is stiff with what I guess is blood. She isn't talking through her mouth or her mind, but like the mice and the things in the trees through her whole damn body, upright and narrow, very proper in her way. Her voice isn't made of words either. She's speaking in odours, echoes, noises with random meanings popping out of them. 
a twitching rear paw, creaking sounds of welcome in her throat that don't say what they should say, no hello or hi, no formal greetings. It's my front end takes the food quality muzzle for the queen yesterday. You said queen again. She steps forward. Queen, open me up. Jesus, Sue, what? What? The noise its face makes. I crouch. Really take a look at her. I've spent the last seven or so years staring at Sue, but I never saw her white chest talk two ways, one for the open road, the, the time of the whole world, the wild dogs out there, the other way for inside the cage, the safety of locked doors and a hand on her back. A hand on my back. Her body crackles around the parrot. It's all mine, queens. Everything in me says this is bad. An edgy dingo is a dangerous one. I'm not after your bird, I tell her. You can moor it. Why don't we go back to your enclosure to do that? She bursts forward, body dancing. You'd think it'd be easier now that we can talk. Back to your yard, good dog. But her twitchy paw, the rumbles in her throat, her smooth pelt and her smart as whip ears all together say, gasping over the lock, I'm Minji. It'll call me and I'd like to get a drink of it. It doesn't make a lick of sense. I speak slow so she can understand. Why don't we go back barking mad? I stare at her. Try another tactic. It's dangerous out there, Sue. You'll get hurt. What? You've got to go back to your enclosure. The smell of metal comes from her forehead at the mention of the cage. It gets in my nose too. Same smell as is on my hands when I've been hauling gates open and shut all day, locking up Sue and all the other creatures safe and sound. No whiskers on, the inside out. You have to go back. Come on, we'll go for a walk. Pat my thigh. Come on. Pat Pat walkies had so much power yesterday. Now it seems stupid next to the rippling chorus that's coming off her white furry socks. Thank you so much, Laura. That was brilliant. No problem. Thank you. You've been listening to Take Home Reading, a Wheeler Centre audio series. That was Laura Jean McKay reading from her novel The Animals in That Country. It's published by Scribe Publications and available now please shop local and support new Australian work. We'll be back soon with another episode of Take Home Reading. Until then, visit wheelercentre.com for the best in books, writing and ideas from Melbourne, Australia and the world.